Part 10 of Kamakura by Yone Noguchi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Enoshima, written by Lafcadio Hearn. The road slopes before us as we go, sinks down between cliffs steep as the walls of a canyon, and curves. Suddenly, we emerge from the cliffs and reach the sea. It is blue like the unclouded sky, a soft, dreamy blue, and our path turns sharply to the right and winds along cliff summits, overlooking a broad beach of dun-coloured sand. And the sea wind blows deliciously with a sweet saline scent, urging the lungs to fill themselves to the very utmost. And far away before me, I perceive a beautiful high green mass, an island foliage-covered, rising out of the water, about a quarter of a mile from the mainland. Enoshima, the holy island, sacred to the goddess of the sea, the goddess of beauty. I can already distinguish a tiny town, grey sprinkling its steep slope. Evidently, it can be reached today on foot, for the tide is out, and has left bare a long broad reach of sand, extending to it from the opposite village which we are approaching, like a causeway. At Katase, the little settlement facing the island, we must leave our jinriksha and walk. The dunes between the villages and the beach are too deep to pull the vehicle over. Scores of other jinriksha are waiting here in the little narrow street for pilgrims who have preceded me. But today, I am told, I am the only European who visits the shrine of Benten. Our two men lead the way over the dunes, and we soon descend upon damp, firm sand. As we near the island, the architectural details of the little town define delightfully through the faint sea haze, curved bluish sweeps of fantastic roofs, angles of airy balconies, high-peaked curious gables, all above a fluttering of queerly shaped banners covered with mysterious lettering. We pass the sand flats, and the ever-open portal of the sea city the city of the dragon goddess is before us, a beautiful tori. All of bronze it is, with shimenawa of bronze above it, and a brazen tablet inscribed with characters declaring, This is the palace of the goddess of Enoshima. About the bases of the ponderous pillars are strange designs in relievo, eddyings of waves with tortoises struggling in the flow. This is really the gate of the city, facing the shrine of Benten by the land approach, but it is only the third tori of the imposing series through Katase. We did not see the others, having come by way of the coast. And lo, we are in Anoshima. High before us slopes the single street, a street of broad steps, a street shadowy, full of multicoloured flags and dark blue drapery, dashed with white fantasticalities which are words, fluttered by the sea wind. It is lined with taverns and miniature shops. At every one, I must pause to look, and to dare to look at anything in Japan is to want to buy it. So I buy and buy and buy. For verily, tis a city of mother-of-pearl, this Anoshima. In every shop, behind the lettered draperies, there are miracles of shell-work for sale, at absurdly small prices. The glazed cases laid flat upon the matted platforms, 
the shelved cabinets set against the walls, are all opalescent with nacreous things, extraordinary surprises, incredible ingenuities, strings of mother-of-pearl fish, strings of mother-of-pearl birds, all shimmering with rainbow colours. There are little kittens of mother-of-pearl, and little foxes of mother-of-pearl, and little puppies of mother-of-pearl, and girls' hair combs and cigarette holders, and pipes too beautiful to use. There are little tortoises, not larger than a shilling, made of shells that, when you touch them, however lightly, begin to move head, legs and tail, all at the same time, alternately withdrawing or protruding their limbs, so much like real tortoises, as to give one a shock of surprise. There are storks and birds, and beetles and butterflies and crabs and lobsters, made so cunningly of shells, that only touch convinces you they are not alive. There are bees of shell, poised on flowers of the same material, poised on wire in such a way that they seem to buzz if moved only with the tip of a feather. There is shell-work jewellery indescribable, things that Japanese girls love, enchantments in mother-of-pearl, hairpins carven in a hundred forms, brooches, necklaces, and there are photographs of Enoshima. This curious street ends at another torii, a wooden torii, with a steeper flight of stone steps ascending to it. At the foot of the steps are votive stone lamps, and a little well, and a stone tank at which all pilgrims wash their hands and rinse their mouths before approaching the temples of the gods. And hanging beside the tank are bright blue towels, with large white Chinese characters upon them. I ask Akira what these characters signify. Hoken is the sound of the characters in the Chinese, but in Japanese, the same characters are pronounced Kenjitate, Matsuru, and signify that these towels are most humbly offered to Benten. They are what you call votive offerings, and there are many kinds of votive offerings to be made to famous shrines. Some people give towels, some give pictures, some give vases, some offer lanterns of paper or bronze or stone. It is common to promise such offerings when making petitions to the gods, and it is usual to promise a tori. The tori may be small or great, according to the wealth of him who gives it. The very rich pilgrim may offer to the gods a tori of metal, such as that below, which is the gate of Enoshima. Now we are going to visit the dragon cavern, not so called, Akira says, because the dragon of Benten ever dwelt therein, but because the shape of the cavern is the shape of a dragon. The path descends towards the opposite side of the island and suddenly breaks into a flight of steps cut out of the pale hard rock, exceedingly steep and worn and slippery and perilous, overlooking the sea. A vision of low pale rocks and surf bursting among them and a toro or votive stone lamp in the centre of them, all seen as in a bird's eye view over the verge of an awful precipice. I see also deep round holes in one of the rocks. There used to be a tea house below, and the wooden pillars supporting it were fitted into those holes. I descend with caution. The Japanese seldom slip in their straw sandals, but I can only proceed with the aid of the guide. At almost every step I slip. 
Surely these steps could never have been thus worn away by the straw sandals of pilgrims who came to see only stones and serpents. At last we reach a plank gallery carried along the face of the cliff above the rocks and pools, and following it round a projection of the cliff, enter the sacred cave. The light dims as we advance, and the sea waves, running after us into the gloom, make a stupefying roar, multiplied by the extraordinary echo. Looking back, I see the mouth of the cavern like a prodigious, sharply angled rent in blackness, showing a fragment of azure sky. We reach a shrine with no deity in it, pay a fee, and lamps being lighted and given to each of us, we proceed to explore a series of underground passages. So black they are, that even with the light of the three lamps, I can at first see nothing. In a while, however, I can distinguish stone figures in relief, chiselled on slabs like those I saw in the Buddhist graveyard. These are placed at regular intervals along the rock walls. The guide approaches his light to the face of each one and utters a name, Daikoku-sama, Fudo-sama, Kwannon-sama. Sometimes in lieu of a statue, there is an empty shrine only, with a money box before it, and these void shrines have the names of Shinto gods, Daijingu, Hachiman, Inari-sama. All the statues are black, or seem black in the yellow lamplight, and sparkle as if frosted. I feel as if I were in some mortuary pit, some subterranean burial place of dead gods. Interminable the corridor appears, yet there is at last an end, an end with a shrine in it, where the rocky ceiling descends so low that to reach the shrine one must go down on hands and knees and there is nothing in the shrine. This is the tale of the dragon. We do not return to the light at once, but enter into other lateral black corridors, the wings of the dragon. More sable effigies of dispossessed gods, more empty shrines, more stone faces covered with saltpetre, and more money boxes, possible only to reach by stooping, where more offerings should be made and there is no benten, either of wood or stone. I am glad to return to the lights. Here our guide strips naked, and suddenly leaps head foremost into a black, deep, swirling current between rocks. Five minutes later he reappears, and clambering out, lays at my feet a living, squirming sea-snail and an enormous shrimp. Then he resumes his robe, and we reascend the mountain. And this, the reader may say, this is all that you went forth to see, a toddy, some shells, a small damask snake, some stones. It is true, and nevertheless I know that I am bewitched. There is a charm indefinable about the place, a sort of charm which comes with a little ghostly thrill never to be forgotten. Not of strange sights alone is this charm made, but of numberless subtle sensations and ideas interwoven and interblended. The sweet, sharp sense of grove and sea, the blood-brightening, vivifying touch of the free wind, the dumb appeal of ancient, mystic, mossy things, vague reverence evoked by knowledge of treading soil called holy for a thousand years, and a sense of sympathy as a human duty, compelled by the vision of steps of rock, 
worn down into shapelessness by the pilgrim feet of vanished generations. And other memories ineffaceable, the first sight of the sea-girt city of Pearl through a fairy veil of haze, the windy approach to the lovely island over the velvety soundless brown stretch of sand, the weird majesty of the giant gate of bronze, the queer, high-sloping, fantastic, quaintly gabled street, flinging down sharp shadows of aerial balconies, the flutter of coloured draperies in the sea-wind, and of flags with their riddles of lettering, the pearly glimmering of the astonishing shapes. And impressions of the enormous day, the day of the land of the gods, a loftier day than ever our summers know, and the glory of the view from those green, sacred, silent heights between sea and sun, and the remembrance of the sky, a sky spiritual as holiness, a sky with clouds ghost-pure and white as the light itself, seeming, indeed, not clouds but dreams, or souls of bodhisattvas about to melt forever into some blue nirvana. And the romance of Benten, too, the deity of beauty, the divinity of love, the goddess of eloquence, rightly as she named goddess of the sea, for is not the sea most ancient and most excellent of speakers, the eternal poet, chanter of that mystic hymn whose rhythm shakes the world, whose mighty syllables no man may learn. End of part 10 End of Kamakura by Yone Noguchi